certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You you shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age, in the age to come eternal life. Thanks for that reading, Inika. It's great to be with you. My name's Ken. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, and it's really good to have you here with us tonight. Um, As has been said, we're looking through Luke's Gospel. We've been looking at Luke's Gospel actually for a number of years now. Um, We're taking our time, which is good. Um, We come back to it at the start of each year. And, And at this point in time, we're getting close to Jerusalem. It's only four weeks to Easter, And it's only four weeks till we get to the Easter events in Luke's gospel as well. And so we've been, we've turned our series, The Upside Down Kingdom, and we've been looking at these two questions week by week, that who is able to get into the kingdom? And then when you're a part of that kingdom, what does it look like to live as a member of the kingdom? So those questions are going to come up again tonight. Um, Just a a, a warning, I guess, in advance, um, if you're not, a regular at WBC, we don't always talk about money, but we don't shy away from money when it comes up in the text, and it comes up in tonight's passage, obviously, uh, and so we're going to deal with what Jesus has got to say about money. Um, because of that, and because it's God's word, we need, uh, we're, we're completely dependent on him to enable us to understand and respond to it rightly. So I invite you to pray with me now. Let's do that. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us your word Uh, in a way that we can understand it. Thank you for this place that we can meet together with others who are likewise seeking to understand uh, what you've said to us in order for us to know how to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Uh, We pray that this time would be uh, a really valuable investment, that this this would help us to understand what you're saying to us, uh, that you'd enable us to understand it and by your spirit you'd work in us uh, so that we would respond to this rightly uh, with repentance and faith in Jesus. Uh, We pray these things in his name. Amen. Now, whether or not you normally take notice of the daily stock market updates, I don't, uh, but you might. Well, even if you don't, the recent GameStop saga put investing firmly into the limelight. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, basically an enormous group of everyday people 
started buying shares in an American computer game retailer called GameStop. Because of the sheer number of shares that they bought, the prices of the stock just skyrocketed. But these rookie investors didn't choose this particular investment with the goal of making lots of money. They did it as a coordinated attack on the most powerful financial brokers in the world. Seeing themselves a bit like modern day Robin Hoods, they used the tools that the wealthy used to make money against the wealthy and they won. And I think that's what drove interest in the story. We love it when the little guy wins, when David defeats Goliath, when Robin Hood steals from the rich to give to the poor. And that's how many people interpret this part of the Bible. It's assumed that like an ancient Robin Hood, Jesus is redistributing wealth to those who actually need it. That Jesus is the friend of the poor, someone who, who fights against the, the rich and the powerful. And we cheer on as spectators, go get him, Jesus! Thankful for a hero who takes care of little people like us. But when, when and if we slow down to look at the details, this conclusion actually becomes a little doubtful. Investing these days is thought of primarily in terms of financial gain. Most definitions that I looked up suggest that investing is to buy things with the goal of making money. And consistent with that financial focus, it's obvious that money and wealth are the language of these verses. But my suggestion is that there is actually something much bigger going on than money and wealth, which is revealed by asking the question, what is Jesus' investment strategy? What is Jesus' investment strategy? Will members of his upside-down kingdom invest in exactly the same things as those who are not members of the kingdom? Or does Jesus have some special insider information for kingdom members? Our passage can be broken up into three parts. In verses 18 to 21, it asks the question, who are you talking to? In verses 22 to 25, there's investment advice from Jesus. And then finally, in verses 26 to 30, the bystanders are shocked and shocked in their response. So the question, what is Jesus' investment strategy? Well, notice that, first of all, that this interaction is initiated, verse 18, by a certain ruler. We know from the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Mark both record this same event, they tell it a very slightly different, but we know from there that he was also wealthy and young. But Luke's emphasis, he doesn't tell us those things, but he tells us that this is somebody who understands authority, who knew what it was to give commands and see them followed. He approached Jesus and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, Matthew and Mark give us a little bit more information. They, they show really clearly that he is actually genuine as he asks this question. It's not just flattery calling Jesus a good teacher. But even so, Jesus' response makes clear that he doesn't accept this ruler's polite question at face value. The word good is too often a generic, bland, almost meaningless adjective and so Jesus pulls him up on it. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Now, don't get me wrong, this is not a grammar lesson from Jesus. He's not an English teacher or a Greek teacher. Jesus wants the ruler to stop and realise who he's actually speaking to. When you ask Jesus for advice, it is not like posting on Facebook for recommendations. You're not visiting a financial advisor requesting advice that you can later evaluate and work out whether you want to implement it or not. If you call Jesus good teacher, you need to understand everything that is implied in the use of that term. You must know who you're speaking to so that you can immediately obey his instruction. Once we used to work in Thailand, we worked over there for 12 years and we used to come back about every two years. Uh, One time we were living up in Ingerding, just at the south of the Shire, and I'd gone up to Woolies to buy a couple of SIMs for our mobile phones so that we could get in contact with people. While I was waiting in line to buy, I, had, I already had my cards with me, this guy standing behind me started offering me advice about what's the best plan to go on. I was a bit shocked at his boldness and I was about to say something about giving opinions where they weren't wanted when I thought, hang on a second... I think I know that voice. And sure enough, when I turned around, it was Colin Buchanan (laughs) giving me advice on the best mobile phone plan. Colin Buchanan, legendary singer, songwriter, performer, theologian. Now, maybe Colin has a secret expertise in telecommunications that matches his singing prowess, but he's not the first person you think of to approach for advice on mobile phone plans, is he? We assume that this is not his area of expertise, which makes the interaction in our passage far more significant than the ruler even realised. When this ruler approached Jesus, he wasn't asking someone about an issue that they were vaguely familiar with, a hobby or a special interest. What this ruler needed to realise was he had just approached the world expert on the question of eternal life. The one person in all of history who wasn't simply following trends or or making educated guesses about which option was the best one to take. Jesus refused to be treated as just one opinion amongst others. The words that he was about to speak were words coming from the mouth of the one with all authority, the one who knew the future, and so could declare with certainty what must be done now to invest wisely for the future. Now, I wonder if Jesus gave the man some time to to process what was going on. Did he have a clue what Jesus was getting at? Well, we don't know. All Luke records is that Jesus immediately goes on to quote half of the Ten Commandments. And I assume that's not because he forgot what the other five were. Verse 20, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, honour your parents. They're all from the second half of the commandments, the the commands which are focused more on how we relate to others. And notice the link back to the passage that we looked at last week. Jesus mentions two of the three things that the Pharisee had boasted about in his prayer and yet he'd then gone home from the temple not justified, not right with God. Now, maybe Jesus did choose these five commands because you can obey their surface meaning and still break the heart of them. 
had this ruler not formally committed adultery, but he was given over to lust? Had he not murdered, and yet he was regularly angry with his brother? Now, perhaps that wasn't the reason. Perhaps these five commands seem easier to keep than the commands, which are specifically about how we relate to God. Whatever it was, this ruler had been brought up to know that these things were the right things to do. And he believed that he had done them all of his life. In verse 21, he told Jesus as much. Which again means that we need to notice the parallel that Luke's making to what we looked at last week. As far as this ruler is concerned, he has done everything that he needs to do. And therefore, he deserves eternal life. Now, by quoting these five commands, it almost seems that that Jesus agrees that obedience to the law is what is needed in order to inherit eternal life. But then Jesus replies to the man's self-assessment in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. One thing he lacked... What did Jesus mean? It's obvious from what Jesus said in the following verses that that Jesus knew that this man was wealthy. According to most people's judgment, he wasn't lacking. He had it all. In fact, most, if not all of the people listening at the time would have assumed that not only was he wealthy, but the very reason that he was wealthy was precisely because he had kept all of God's rules. He was both wealthy and good. Now, the Old Testament does suggest in a number of places, if you think Abraham's life, the book of Job, the end of the book of Deuteronomy, King Solomon, wealth is considered the proof that you've lived in a way that pleases God. But while there are verses that tell us that God blesses his people when they obey, there are other equally important verses that tell us that it's not that simple. It's not a recipe. Verses that warn us to to not trust in our wealth, like Proverbs 18, verse 11. That if you chase after wealth, you will never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. That that wealth is like a fleeting vapour, just some some smoke going up in the sky. Proverbs 21, verse 6. So wealth, in some sense, is neutral. It can be either good or bad. It depends on what it means to us. And whether there was something in the man's answer that gave it away or it was just straight out divine insight, Jesus is able to see the danger that wealth holds for this man. Jesus sees past all that the man has and sees instead what he doesn't have. He doesn't have treasure in heaven. Now, when we lived in Thailand, we had a bank account both in Thailand and in Australia. Because of the digital connection between banks, I could go down to the the local ATM at the Thai market and withdraw Thai baht from my Australian bank account. It was pretty cool. Money in Australia was easily converted from dollars into baht. But Jesus here in these verses tells this man that no such transfers can take place between earth and heaven. If all of your investments are here on earth, You cannot access them from heaven. So we have to decide which account we're going to put them in. Where are we going to put our treasure? 
So what did the ruler have to do to ensure that he had treasure in heaven? Well, it's simple. Verse 22, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So everyone can go home. See ya. (laughs) Go and list all of your possessions on Gumtree or Marketplace. Give all the money off to the poor. That's what it says, isn't it? But hang on, we say, surely there's a principle here. Some parts of the Bible are descriptive rather than prescriptive. And so we don't apply universally what was intended for an individual. Maybe in this specific case, Jesus could see into the man's heart and and knew that wealth had become a problem for him. But thankfully, it's not my problem. Sure, I can probably declutter a little bit. I should be a bit more satisfied with the possessions that I already have. But there's no need to be rash and just throw everything away. Now, I hope you're feeling the tension that I'm feeling. Doesn't this sound a lot like we're finding excuses for why this doesn't apply to us? Aren't we desperately insisting that that Jesus couldn't possibly mean that everyone in his kingdom must be poor? And don't worry, I do agree that the universal application of this passage is not simply go and sell everything and give it to the poor. But let's be very clear. Jesus did promise the ruler treasure in heaven, the one thing which he was lacking. And if he was to receive that treasure, there was a price to pay, a very, very high price. The ruler understands exactly what Jesus demands And so he becomes very sad because he was so wealthy. It's not explicit here in Luke, but again, Matthew and Mark make clear that in his sadness, he turned his back and walked away from Jesus. He was unwilling to pay such a price. But it's not just because of the enormous cost. Going to uni costs a lot of money, doesn't it? But we invest in further study because we believe that the future benefits will make the sacrifice of time and money now worthwhile. Buying a house isn't cheap. And yet many of us have or want to invest in a house because it's guaranteed to rise in value so long as we hang on to it for long enough. We invest in our kids and our health and all manner of things that cost a lot of money. And we do so because we're convinced that the future gains outweigh the present costs. But when it comes to Jesus' financial advice, this ruler doesn't believe that the potential future gains justify the the present costs. There's too much to lose that he can see and touch in the hope of gaining something that he's not really sure is there. Now, if he truly believed that Jesus knew what he was talking about, then no cost would be too high, no no command too difficult to obey. And so while all of the language in this passage that's used is about money and wealth and possessions, at the very heart of the issue is actually the question of who is Jesus? Is he just another opinion giver? an expert amongst experts who has his own particular quirky take on on how we succeed in life? Or is he the all-knowing financial planner who can tell you what is guaranteed to have value into eternity? Now, some of you may have heard me tell this story before. Many years ago, 
a friend of mine was a mechanic working for an airline at the time called ANSET. He decided to leave his secure job and go off to Bible college. Now, naturally, his mates said that he was crazy. He received a little payout, which was put towards his college expenses. A few months later, ANSET collapsed. It no longer exists. And so all of his old workmates were left with absolutely nothing, not even the little payout that he got. When my friend made his decision to leave, it looked like it was absolute financial suicide. It turned out to be the best possible financial decision he could have made. At the time he made the decision, he had no idea what the future held, but he was willing to trust the one who held the future. And while this passage does not guarantee that it will work out nicely like that for us, do we trust what Jesus has to say to us about how to secure the future? Can we accept Jesus' advice to put all of our eggs in one basket, to give up our investments here on earth and invest in heaven? Or are we going to be like others who try to have a bet each way? This is not the first time when people are faced with a choice, that they, they try to diversify their investments, something that the financial advisors insist is a wise thing to do. Israel often tried to trust both God and the same things that the people that were living around them trusted in. In practice, this meant that they repeatedly fell into the trap of looking for future security in military strength, in financial holdings, in alliances with people that they shouldn't have been aligned with. One of King David's biggest failures was uh, when he counted the number of troops in his army. While it's completely logical and even necessary from a human perspective, it revealed that David trusted in the size of his army rather than in the size of his God. And don't we have a tendency to do exactly the same thing? In practice, our lives often reveal that, that deep down inside, we believe that our future can only be certain if we have the right life partner, the right career, enough super, a decent cash flow. Now, we believe in God. We love God. We're, we're grateful that he is going to give us eternal life because Jesus died in our place. But for the day-to-day things, we believe that, that we have to look after ourselves because no one else is going to. And so we go along with the world, which insists that we secure the future by being as rich as we possibly can. Rather than listening to Jesus, who says in verse 24, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, the upside-down kingdom is firmly on display. Rather than a sign confirming that you are in, wealth is a warning sign that you're in danger of not even making it through the gates. And we assume that surely Jesus must be talking about the Bill Gates, the the Jeff Bezoses, the James Packers of our world. But did you know that the average Aussie is in the top 10 richest people in the world? There's a whole bunch of websites that you can put your annual income into and it compares where you stand against people around the rest of the world. I dare you, when you go home, not now, to Google how rich am I. Then 
When you've put your details in and you've got a ranking in front of you, then ask the question, who is Jesus speaking about in verse 24? Now, just in case we still haven't got the point, Jesus went on to say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm at that age where I now have to wear these to read and I struggle with them on to get one tiny little cotton thread through the eye of a needle. The impossibility of squashing a camel through a whopping tiny needle, whopping great camel through a tiny needle, is almost comical. If it wasn't for the fact that those listening assume that rich people were the first to enter. If it's impossible for the good, for the wealthy, then what about the rest of us? Verse 26 says that those who heard Jesus' illustration were even more amazed at this. So they asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replies to them, verse 27, while it's impossible for man, it is possible with God. Thankfully, if God enables it, then even a rich person can turn from trusting in their riches to trusting in Jesus. It will be a miracle, but it can happen. Now, I think that the disciples at this point are struggling to understand what Jesus is saying far more than the rich ruler did. He was able to walk away, his decision made. But the disciples could see that this rich man wasn't such a bad bloke. He'd kept all the rules. It doesn't appear that he cheated anyone to get where he was. He might have quite a bit put away for a rainy day, but no one could say that he wasn't also committed to his faith. He was the one, after all, who had come to Jesus asking about eternal life. What had he done wrong? It just seemed so, so upside down and back to front. Now, we've got Peter, thankfully, as the one who likes to think out loud, chimes in by saying that they'd left everything to follow Jesus. And I think Peter's implied question is, we've already invested like you've told this guy to. Does that mean that our investment's going to finally pay off? Jesus replies to Peter that no one who has left home or family for his sake and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and eternal life in the age to come. It's an incredibly great assurance saying to Peter, don't worry, your return on investment is guaranteed. If you give all to the kingdom, the returns, even in this life, are going to be spectacular which means that Jesus is definitely not talking in merely financial terms at this point. Jesus says, don't worry, I've got this, you can trust me, do what I'm telling you to do and I promise it will work out. Imagine if all of Jesus' followers were like Peter and the other disciples and, and turned their backs on all that they own to follow him. What would it look like? Imagine a whole crowd of people who reject what the world insists we have to do and instead invest in treasure in heaven. How earth-changing would it be if money was regarded merely as a tool primarily to facilitate people hearing about Jesus? After all, what goes to heaven but people? Some people talk about crowns and, and mansions as rewards in heaven, but what will we care about jewels or buildings 
when we're dwelling in the presence of Almighty God. And so yesterday we had an event here speaking of investing in the interns. We can invest in those doing gospel ministry, whether in Wollongong, around Australia or around the world. Those things are obviously good investments, no-brainers. But I think that the trickier decisions that we face are the ones we make every day in which we just tend to go with the flow of our society. We buy and accumulate, assuming that it will provide our security or our happiness. Now, as history teaches us, people often respond to these words with opposite extremes. Some hear these words and focus in on the promise. They fully expect the 100 times return right here and now, assuming that if they scratch God's back, he'll scratch theirs. Others have responded by going off to live as monks with no possessions whatsoever. Now, the very fact that Jesus could be accused of partying too much shows that life with Jesus wasn't all rags and fasting. And so I think in the end, this is not about how much wealth you hold. It's about how much wealth has a hold on you. Jesus' insider tip for investing is that nothing, there is absolutely nothing that compares in value to him. And so whether you have a lot or a little in this life, are you investing in Jesus? The man on the screen's name is Stephen Thomas. In January this year, his holdings of Bitcoin had risen in value to $286 million. That's a lot of zeros. But he's got one problem. He's forgotten the password that lets him access his Bitcoin. <laughs> he's got 10 attempts to get the password right and he's already failed eight of them. If he messes up the next two, the Bitcoin's gone forever. But don't feel sad for Stefan. If you only have treasure here on earth, then you've already used up all your chances. Unless you change your investment strategy, whatever you stored up will be lost. Investing is ultimately attempt to secure the future. And maybe Jesus is using hyperbole to make his point. But is Jesus' upside-down kingdom the most valuable thing in our lives? Or are we just chasing after fool's gold? Let's pray.